This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong Hi, I'm Jake Adler. I'm a second year at UVA, interning with the Center for Politics this semester, and I'm super excited to be on the show today to talk about everything politics. And I'm Kyle Kondig, managing editor of the Crystal Ball. In this episode, we're going to talk with Paul Begala about the changing nature of political campaigns, the 2022 elections, and the media's role in partisan animosity. Paul Begala is a political commentator, a professor of public policy, an author, and political strategist. He's a contributor for CNN, where he is part of the political team that has won both an Emmy Award and a Peabody Award. In addition to appearing on air, Paul writes commentary for CNN.com. Mr. Begala burst on the political scene in 1992 as a senior strategist for Bill Clinton's presidential campaign. Enjoy our conversation. We are recording this conversation in the lead up to the 2022 midterm elections. Um, And in this moment, our political environment is characterized by political animosity and hyperpartisanship. How have campaigns evolved since you were the chief strategist for President President Bill Clinton's campaign in 1992? Um, And what are the changes in campaigns and elections reflect about the U.S. electorate and American democracy today? Wow, that's a big question and a very smart one. Um, fundamentally, they've changed completely. Um, yeah, I'll get to a minute some things that remain the same, but everything has changed. Um, we're, the, the pool of undecided voters or swing voters or ticket splitting voters has shrunk to single digits. You know, 30 years ago, it was 20, 30, 40 percent might move back and forth. Uh, when I began my career, uh, one of my clients, one of the first people I worked for was Frank Lautenberg. He was a senator from New Jersey. I worked for Frank's re-election in 1988. And on the same day in New Jersey, George Bush Sr. carried New Jersey by over 15 points against Michael Dukakis. And Frank Lautenberg, who was more liberal than Dukakis, won his Senate re-election against a very formidable opponent. So back then, you see you had 30% of New Jerseyans who were swinging back and forth on the same day. That is unimaginable today. We're so deep in our polarization and our partisanship. Uh, we've sorted ourselves out that way. We live uh, in, in enclaves. Uh, when, when, when I started, when I was your age, Jake, I voted my first election in 1980 for Jimmy Carter. And out of the 3,100 counties, that was a landslide for Reagan, 3,100 counties, Fewer than 400 went by a landslide, 20 points or more, for either Reagan or Carter. This last election, much, much closer, Biden and Trump, 1,750 counties went by a landslide, encompassing the overwhelming majority of Americans. Uh, I think that's lamentable, but we can get to whether that's a good or bad thing. But so we're we're so deep. Partisanship has become part of our identity. Um, The percentage of Americans who uh, don't want their child to marry someone of a different race has collapsed in the last 50 years, uh, down to low single digits. People who don't want their child to marry outside of their religion has collapsed in the last 50 years. People who say they don't want their child to marry someone of the different political party has exploded. Uh, again, I have my views about that, uh, but but uh, so, so we're very, very deep. And I, I think a, a lot of things are driving it. Um, economic stagnation for the working class. The um, I'm trying to think of a neutral word. The um, the expanding diversity of America. When Bill Clinton got elected, 
89% of the voters were white. 89, 9 out of 10. That's not very different from when George Washington got elected. It was 100%. That's, that's not. From Clinton to Biden, it's gone from 89 to 67. So more diversity. So, so the Hispanic vote was 2% when I worked for Clinton. It's 13 now. The black vote was about 8. It's 13 now. Uh, the Asian American was 1 or 2. It's about 4 now. Um, it, it, people like, uh, I'm showing my bias, people like me love that and we celebrate it. But there are a lot of white people who look like me who do not celebrate it. And it's driving our partnership. Finally, um, Jake, the, the, the last thing is this. Uh, I'm sorry you can't see it on the podcast, but this is a, this is a smartphone. And social media has really put jet fuel behind all the other fissures in our society. Those divisions predated social media. And yet today we are more divided than ever. And I, I, I really do. I think social media is more to blame than probably anything else. Can I ask a follow-up question? You mentioned in your response that you were going to talk about how some things have stayed the same. So, so what is still the same? You know, the very first meeting, James Carville and I, my partner, uh, Carville and I had with Bill Clinton. Carville said to him, Governor, this is 1991. Clinton's already running for president, but, you know, he wanted to hire us. He said, Governor, let me tell you one thing. The path to the Democratic nomination runs through black people and especially Southern blacks. And Clinton said, oh, I believe I can win that. And that is still true. The most important voters in the Democratic Party are African-Americans, and I would add Hispanics, Asian-Americans, uh, immigrants, Native Americans, people of color are the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. And the candidate who can um, capture their loyalty and command their affection is always going to be the Democratic nominee. This is why Joe Biden won 44 primaries and caucuses out of 53. 44. Barack Obama never won 44. Bill Clinton never won 44. Why did Joe? It was a very talented field, but almost everybody else in that field was chasing the pain in the ass white liberals. And Joe was the only one who said, wait, I'm going to talk to people of color, the real heart of the Democratic Party. And that's why Joe won. So that's still true. If you want to be a Democrat and you want to succeed in this business, you ought not be wasting your time with people that look like me. I mean, you should, you should, you should campaign with everybody. Okay. But the heart and soul of the Democratic Party is not the the leftists on Twitter, the white leftists on Twitter. It is a church lady in Orangeburg, South Carolina. That remains the same. Uh, and by the way, it's still the, the, uh, the parallel to the Republican Party is I believe it's not my party, but uh, I believe the heart and soul of their party, not the majority, any more than black people, the majority of my party, but white Christian evangelicals. And if you really want to drill down, white Christian evangelical men who do not have a college degree, like you want to know the people who would stick with Trump if he shot a man on Fifth Avenue? Those are those voters. And if you can command their affection and loyalty, you can control the Republican Party. The business community just follows along. They just, because they want to get their tax cuts. But, but the, the key to every successful, George W. Bush, uh, Donald Trump, every successful Republican has been, they've begun with the heart of their party, which is, I believe, white Christian evangelicals, especially men without a college degree. That's the same. I'm curious to know, do you think that campaigns in any way have fueled the partisanship that we're seeing and the um, divide um, in American politics and the electorate? Yeah, the short answer is no. 
because Ecclesiastes teaches us there's a time <laughs> to separate and a time to come together. And campaign is about drawing distinctions. It is. I think what's happened is once the campaign has ended, people don't take off their partisan jerseys, right? So nobody worked harder to defeat President George H.W. Bush than I did. Busted my tail. And yet the day after the election, he was my president still for several months, and uh, he demanded and required uh, my loyalty and, and respect. Um, and so much so that actually one of my brothers wound up working for Bush Sr. in his retirement in Houston. And um, I think that's the way America ought to be, right? If two brothers can't be on opposite sides of the political aisle and not love each other and be terribly close, then you're in the wrong game. So it's not really the campaigns. I think it's that it has in it's both before and after election day. Before election day, all the primaries have driven us to the way the primaries are structured, have driven us to more extreme positions. But then afterwards, we are losing the ability to look across the aisle and say, that's a good person with bad ideas. She loves her country as much as I do, but I just have a different way that I think we should go. And and I, I can't, I, I'm sorry to be such a reductionist, but I think social media has more to do with that than anything else. And we can talk about cable news where I work or, or mainstream newspapers, but the, the, the algorithms feed you nothing but negative, hateful, divisive, because they are programmed by computer scientists and neuroscientists who understand that the human brain is triggered and targeted uh, by negativity and division, not by healing and hope and unity. So I, I, I think... I think it's really lamentable, but I don't think it's the way we run campaigns per se. Campaigns have always been rough. Go back to look at Jefferson ran against Adams. Okay, um, uh, Je Jefferson uh, accused Adams. Huh, get this in in the gender dominated uh, right wing media we have now. Jefferson accused Adams of being a hermaphrodite. Uh, he meant it in a political sense. He said, lacking both the manly virtues of strength and the womanly virtues of kindness. Um, Adams responded, uh, accusing Jefferson of having fathered black children, which we know to be true. Uh, but he also said he, one of his newspapers put out a story that said, Jefferson is dead. So kind of hard to vote for him, right? That's fake news in the very first contested election we ever had. So elections have always been about dividing. I'm okay with that. It's that we're losing the ability to come back together afterward. I want to ask you, as you're watching the political campaigns in this midterm election, where do you see effective political organizing happening? And what advice do you have for candidates and their teams? Wow, that's a great question, Kara. Um, all over the place, in my party. I know my party better. So like there's a woman named Lavora Barnes. Lavora Barnes is the chair of the Michigan Democratic Party. Now, Hillary lost Michigan by about 10,000 votes or so. And uh, Lavora, Chairwoman Barnes, took over the party and she said, I'm going to find every one of those 10,000. I'm going to persuade them. Well, Joe Biden won Michigan by 150,000. That's, it's for a lot of reasons, but in part because Michigan Democrats organized. They didn't just whine and complain. They didn't blame Fox News or they didn't pretend the election was rigged or the machines were captured by, uh, uh, you know, a, a Venezuelan communist or any of that. They just worked their guts out and they flipped that state. Um, I, it's been amazing to me to look around the country at state parties like that. I have to say here in Virginia, I think our chair here, Susan Swecker, is one of the best state chairs I've ever seen, has organized and organized. Now they just lost. The Democrats lost the House, the Senate, and the governorship. 
It happens in a democracy. And again, what's your job then? If you're in my party, dust yourself off, stick your head out and say, Governor Youngkin, you are my governor. I'm going to oppose your ideas, but you have my support as my leader. And that's what Terry McAuliffe did. Um, so it took but back to Kara in terms of your question, in terms of organizing. I would single out Michigan, Wisconsin, same thing. Ben Wickler is the chair there. He's been remarkable about organizing his state. Um, two states that you know, have these charismatic figures uh, uh, leading organizing is Georgia and Texas. Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke have registered thousands and thousands and thousands of people, bringing them into the, the political system. It worked in Georgia, where both Senate seats went to the Democrats in 2020. Has not worked in Texas yet. And I know we'll probably get to Texas in a little while, but uh, I've seen, and I'm sure it's happening on the Republican side. I really do. But see, that to me is the key. I, 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 I don't know um, if any of you all played youth sports, uh, but I did. I was terrible. Uh, but I was a good coach. I coached all my kids. And when they lost a game, they had a couple of rules. One was, if you whine about the refs, you're walking home. Because of course the refs make mistakes. But unless you had zero errors... I don't want to hear you whine about the ref's errors. Um, uh, rule two, when you lose, you stand up, you hold your head high, you stick your hand out and you say, good game, Jake. Good job. I'm going to get in the driveway and practice my shots. I'm going to whip you next time. But good for you. And, you know, I, I, that's what you have to do in, in politics because the whole country's at stake. And I really do. Um, I, I think the Republicans... Uh, are not organizing as actively as I wish they were because they keep telling people that the system is rigged, that elections uh, don't matter, or and it's a total lie. And it, they'd do a lot better if they did what Virginia Republicans did, <laughs> which is just work harder <laughs> and, and out campaign the Democrats. That's a better formula than this kind of whining and denying of the results. Paul, I think you got the memo today. There's not video of this, but you're wearing a UVA uh, uh, polo shirt, which we, we appreciate the dress code. <laughs> but I know you're also a University of Texas alum, and you mentioned Texas. And of course, Texas is, I think, one of the most fascinating states in the country. It's um, you know growing by leaps and bounds all the time and getting more competitive over time, although I think it's probably fair to still say it's a Republican-leaning state. But you know. Competitive gubernatorial race there. Um, also seeing a lot of changes. You know, Democrats growing in the suburbs. Um, Republicans, if if there is in fact movement among Latino voters to Republicans, South Texas probably ground zero for that. How do you how do you view Texas right now, both in twenty two and then also looking forward to it as maybe a, a future swing state in 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 presidential elections to come? In Texas, Kyle, uh, I think you have encapsulated what's happening there perfectly. My son, Billy, who I mentioned, is about, in a few days, is going to turn 27. He was born in Austin. He went to the University of Texas, lives in Austin. He's like really rooted there. In his lifetime, we have never won a single statewide election in Texas. That's astonishing. And they elect everybody in Texas. They elect the land commissioner, the agriculture commissioner, the railroad commissioner. Hundreds, plural, hundreds of elections. And the Democrats are O for 27 years. 1994 is the last time any Democrat won a statewide election, 28 years ago. It is a record of failure for the Democrats, success for the Republicans, unsurpassed in America. I mean, you look at Kentucky, a very red state. They got a Democratic governor. Look at Kansas. Kansas has, has voted Democrat once for president in the last 80 years. They have a Democratic governor. 
Look at Alaska, very Republican state. They just elected a congresswoman, a Democrat, to cover the whole state. So you see these. Uh, and by the way, the other way, uh, there, there's a Republican governor of Massachusetts, one of the three most Democratic states, a Republican governor of Maryland, one of the three most Democratic states. So you see this, but you never, ever see it in Texas. <laughs> and it breaks my heart as a Texan and as a Democrat. But it is changing. And it's because of what you said, Kyle. The cities are growing. The suburbs are becoming more diverse and therefore more democratic. Um, the rural areas in South Texas, though, are increasingly Republican, almost impenetrably Republican in the case of the rural vote. Um, what's, what's happening in the suburbs is really interesting. Uh, I grew up in a small town, Missouri City, Texas, which has become a suburb of Houston. When I was a kid, it was a small town, middle of nowhere, with three, 4,000 people. Uh, I went to University of Texas, my wife's dorm, then girlfriend, my girlfriend's dorm had more people in it than my hometown. And yet now it's exploded. And Fort Bend County is the most diverse county in Texas, maybe in America. People from all over. And it's the wealthiest county in Texas. So these immigrants are coming in with skills and education and training. So there's a radiologist from Ghana. You know, there's a dentist from Brazil. There's a banker from Chile. And they're all thrown in there. That's been great for Texas. It's been great for Democrats because they tend to be Democrats. They tend to be Democrats because they're highly educated and because, frankly, many of them perceive Republicans as um, prejudiced. And uh, I think there's some reason for that, but even if there's not, they see that, they believe that. But what's kept the Democrats from winning as they've grown and grown in the suburbs, which, which used to be Republican territory, is what you mentioned, Kyle, a collapse in South Texas, Rio Grande Valley, like I've never seen. In the election between Hillary in, in 2016 and Biden in 2020, Democratic performance in the Rio Grande Valley, the most Democratic place in Texas, dropped by 50 points. <laughs> Not 15, 5-0. I've never seen a collapse like that. It's astonishing. So after the election, uh, I checked with three sources. I want to know what the hell's going on. I called my son, Billy, who's smarter than me and works in Texas politics. I called my friend, Carl Rove, who's also a lot smarter than me, a Republican strategist for President Bush, uh, and is much closer and in, in tune with Texas. He actually lives there. And then I asked the University of Texas to organize a focus group uh, through Zoom at UT Rio Grande Valley. You know what? They all say the same thing. And you know, you may think these are fair attacks or unfair, but what they said was, Republicans have been down here day in and day out telling us, advertising, that Democrats want to ban fracking, uh, defund the military, uh, defund ICE, legalize border crossings without papers, uh, and, and defund the military. And, you know, I, I, my roommate in college was from Starr County, the poorest county in America. And I spent a lot of time down there. And there's only a couple of ways out of poverty. And those are them. Fracking. <laughs> Border Patrol, ICE, County Sheriff's Department, military, all honorable work, by the way. And they believe that Democrats wanted to take all of that away from them. Uh, now, Democrats have an answer. Biden says it's not true. I don't want to litigate it. But the Democrats weren't there. They weren't communicating. They took those people for granted. Um, and, and so they abandoned. Uh, more men than women. But this is part of a larger trend. The Democrats in my lifetime have gone from being the party of the factory floor to being the party of the faculty lounge. 
we used to be the blue collar working class. If your name was stitched on your pocket, you know, you're a Democrat. If your initials were monogrammed on your cufflinks, you're a Republican. We've switched. I don't like it. I have to say, I really don't. And when you lose touch with the working class, I mean, what the hell does the Democratic Party exist for except to advocate for the working class? You know, the Democrats created the weekend. There was no such thing as a weekend. Go look at Downton Abbey. There's a scene where <laughs> one of the uh, elite women is like, weekend? What is that? Well, my party has gotten away from that. And those working class Hispanics in South Texas, they feel that and they see that. And uh, Democrats better find a way to reconnect with working class folks of every color. And, and, and um, South Texas is ground zero for that. You know, one other, um, one other thing going on in politics that was worth, worth mentioning. And uh, actually I actually think he played for the Cowboys at one point, Herschel Walker in Georgia. Um, you know, there's been this obviously big story in the past few days about, uh, you know, that he, he paid for an abortion for his girlfriend and he's been a very anti-abortion candidate. And one of the common things I think a lot of people have said, and I'm curious as your thought about this, we were talking earlier about what's changed and what's not in politics, is that this same story maybe 10 or 20 years ago would have been seen as maybe fatal for Walker. Maybe it would have been, maybe it wouldn't have been. And now it's sort of seen as maybe survivable for him. Do you agree with that? Like that, 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 it's, that it is maybe different now? A hundred percent. It's the death of shame, the death of dignity. Uh, uh, Richard Benveniste was the last Watergate prosecutor, and uh, he's a friend of mine. And Richard will tell you, at least Nixon had a sense of shame. And uh, Trump does not. And I do blame Trump for this. I think he sets tone for Republicans. Uh, uh, you know, he, everybody thought he was through when he was caught on tape bragging about sexually assaulting women. Everybody thought he was through. Paul Ryan, the Republican speaker, was talking about him being through. Uh, and yet Trump re refused. Uh, he apologized. Later, he falsely denied it. But first, he apologized. And enough Republicans just didn't care. Uh, I always like to switch, right? What if it was my team? What if somebody on my team were doing that? Now, Democrats tend to be pro-choice, so it's not a hypocrisy issue if you've been in a position where you needed abortion or you needed to pay for one. Um, but there, what if some Democrat had committed some massive uh, issue of hypocrisy? And by the way, the only the problem with Mr. Walker is not simply whether or not he paid for an abortion when he wants to outlaw them, even when a woman's life is at risk. But it's that his ex-wife and Mr. Walker have talked publicly about Walker holding a gun to her head and threatening to blow her brains out. He, he, I, I don't know where y'all were raised, but man, I tell you what, if my father was still alive and he was a Republican and he heard about someone who lifted a hand to a woman, that'd be it, be deal breaker. And um, I don't know if this is not a deal breaker for my Republican friends in Georgia, I guess I just don't know what is. Um, it, it was a terrible idea to put Walker up for this. He's a damaged man. I think he um, perhaps needs help, but he sure doesn't need to be in the Senate. Mr. Begala, you've already started talking about the way in which we have seen, uh, especially this is happening on the Republican side, but refusal to accept election outcomes um, as, as being problematic for democracy. Um, you've said recently that democracy is on the ballot in some key races this year. 
Can you speak to how democracy has been politicized and become a partisan issue in and of itself? And do you think that that uh, in and of itself poses a threat to democracy? Yeah. Um, Kara, when, when Trump lost, he lost an election that his own administration said was nearly flawless. The most secure election in American history is what the Trump administration called it. Right, because we're watching for this stuff. Because the Russians hacked our last election, they tried to, and they hacked Hillary's emails. And we know all that, right? So, the the Homeland Security Department has this cybersecurity area, and they look at it and they say, "Hey, this is the safest, fairest election we've ever had." And uh, according to the accounts I've read, uh, Trump originally accepted that, and then over time, just days, began to enter into denial, for whatever reasons. I suspect he's a narcissist, but I didn't even take freshman psych. I don't really know. I don't really care. But so he spread this big lie for whatever reason. And I think that's a shame. But what's a shock is that 70% of Republicans now believe it. Now, some of them are just stupid. I'm sorry. I know we're not allowed to say that, but some of them are just dumb. But a lot of them are good people who don't, they don't want to believe that Trump lost. Maybe they live in a community like I do, where everybody voted for Trump. And so, you know, there's a woman named Pauline Kael was the film critic for the New York, New Yorker, I guess, decades ago, when Nixon got reelected, carrying 49 states. She lives in Manhattan. She said, how could Nixon have won? I don't know anybody who voted for him. So some of it is the isolation that we have, right? Everybody lives in a community where everybody voted for Joe or everybody voted for Donald. So I, I understand that. And so I think he's taking advantage of a lot of good people. Um, and yet it, it, that's the acid test of a democracy. I've worked all over the world. Uh, I've worked in Africa, in Europe, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, in Israel. And it's the first and most important thing is to recognize that when you lose, you have to put the country first and stand down. And when you turn to violence after a loss, that's the end of democracy. And, and I, I cannot believe that for the first time in American history, we did not have a peaceful transfer of power. You know, um, I mentioned Adams against Jefferson. It, the election was so bitter that Adams did not attend Jefferson's inaugural. That's the last time an outgoing president did not attend. Now, Adams said, oh, my son was sick, whatever. That's baloney. Um, but he refused to attend. That's how bitter the election was. And you know what Jefferson said? I guess I'm thinking about him because I'm talking at UVA. In his inaugural address, he said, not every difference of opinion is a difference in principle. We are all Federalists. We are all Republicans. You know, that's what you do after election is you come together. And um, these election deniers, this guy Fincham, Mark Fincham is running for Secretary of State of Arizona. He just flat out says the election wasn't fair. It was. The Republican governor certified it. Uh, in Pennsylvania, the de- Republican candidate for governor, Doug Mastriano, uh, attended the January 6th insurrection. Uh, he, I don't think he broke any laws, but he was there. And apparently he believes or tells people that the election was rigged too. So we have a whole slate of election deniers. And again, it's existential. I'd give anything to go back to the days where we just argued over taxes. (laughs) You know, where should we put the highway bypass? Maybe we need uh, longer prison sentences. Maybe we need shorter. I mean, there's a lot of important policy 
arguments we could have, but we can't have them unless everybody agrees that we're going to live by the Constitution, and if the other side gets more votes, we're going to stand down. And in this sense, it is asymmetrical. Again, look at how Virginia Democrats dealt with Glenn Youngkin uh, and the Lieutenant Governor and the Attorney General and the, the, the General Assembly, House of Delegates uh, going Republican. They didn't like it a bit. Many of those people are friends of mine. But every one of them stood and saluted and offered their hand. And that's right after Trump. So the Democrats are not aping Trump. The Republicans are. And it's a real challenge for the country. Paul, you've obviously highlighted several um, problems in our democracy um, today. What would you do to fix our political system and make politics good again? Wow. A lot. Um, Again, great question. I would do everything I could to get more people registered in voting. I don't think I'd go so far as Australia to make voting compulsory. It just seems un-American. But, but you know, that the more people vote. In Israel, where it's not compulsory, everybody votes. Why? Because if they get it wrong, they die, right? They're surrounded by hostile countries and enemies. And, and they're the only democracy in the region. And by God, they believe in democracy. I so admire that country. Uh, and, and so I, I'd do everything I could. Uh, so it, rather than put up more barriers and make it same day registration um, and anything I could to make it easier to vote. Um, uh, second, that's first. Second, I would make it easier to vote across parties. I'd have open primaries in every state. Uh, you shouldn't have to like register, if you ask me, as a Democrat, register as a Republican. You should wake up that morning and say, you know, I'm more interested in the Republican primary. Uh, Virginia allows that. And so in 2000, my wife, a big Democrat, voted in the Republican primary for president because the Democrats was, were large, largely over. Gore had won. And she really admired John McCain. My wife's from a military family. She thought McCain was a real hero. He was. So she wanted to cross over and support McCain in that primary. Um, I think we should have more of that. Uh, I would change the way we draw districts. We need fairer districts. Um, and people are working on that. Eric Holder, the former attorney general and others. I would change how we finance campaigns. Uh, I have uh, raised hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for super PACs. And nobody has ever given me a million dollar check and said, I want, I'm going to give you this, but I want Barack to compromise more with the Republicans, or I want Hillary to compromise more, right? They say, by God. I, and so we have to find a way, even though I work for some super PACs, we have to find a way to do away with them and to uh, reduce the, uh, the influence of money in campaigns. There's lots of ways to do it. Uh, I would, I would encourage junkets. These are not banned anywhere, but I would require members of Congress if they travel to travel in a bipartisan uh, team. They usually do, but I would have more of that. And I, as a person in the press now, I'm in the media. I wouldn't bang on them. I want them to all go to the Paris Air Show and drink expensive French wine and whatever you know, because. Every church has a retreat. Every family has a vacation. Every corporation has an offsite. I want these people to integrate more with each other. Um, uh, for a while after Gabby Giffords was shot, they started, they called it dating, but they, every Republican had a Democrat. They went to the speech, the president's uh, State of the Union address with. And that was terrific. But it only lasted that night, maybe a year or two. And we're right back to it. So I, 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 anything we can do, to like stir, to, to stir things up. But the, the biggest thing, 
I'm just going to stir things up, mix things up again, to reintegrate ourselves. Um, the biggest thing that I, I don't know enough about, but is social media. I'm telling you, the, UVA has this remarkable professor, Siva Vyajanathan. Okay, Siva and I were college buddies. The difference is he actually went to class. I went to the bars. So Siva is a big brain professor. I just saw him last week and we're still close friends. And he has written wonderfully. Everybody should, well, he's not teaching this semester, but everybody should read his books. Everybody should take his class when he's back on grounds. Um, because he, he told me this 10 years ago or more. I remember we we're having dinner and he said, Facebook is incompatible with democracy. Now, I've never been on Facebook in my life, still haven't. I have no interest in Facebook. But I think he's right. And if you look at the Francis Haugen papers, the Facebook whistleblower, these algorithms are designed to fuel hate, division, disinformation. Why? Not because Zuckerberg is evil or good, but because he's trying to make money. So I, I don't know the answer. I don't ever want to restrict free speech, ever. But I, I, there has to be ways to open up those algorithms so we can see them. And, and that doesn't restrict anybody's speech. Because what they do, it's not just Facebook, it's Twitter, it's Instagram, it's TikTok, it's all of them. They put jet fuel behind the hate and the division. And that's not a free speech issue to me. Those algorithms are property, not speech. And what they are doing to our democracy is, I think, the single biggest challenge, Jake, for your generation. You, you all are going to have to figure it out, okay? I'm a Luddite. But those of you who are born in the digital era are going to, seriously, if there's one central challenge, it's make social media compatible with democracy. Paul Pagala, thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. Kara, Jake, Kyle, thank you all very much. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Bates. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.